Greetings and welcome to Fresh Text. Fresh Text is, is a weekly podcast when a pair of pastor scholars study a scripture passage drawn from the Revised Common Lectionary. We hope that it will be enjoyable and edifying for all, as well as equipping for pastors or teachers who are working on sermons or lessons in the upcoming weeks. I'm your host, John Drury. I'm Spiritual Engagement Coordinator for Indiana Wesleyan University in Marion, Indiana. My guest this week is Madison Pierce. Madison is a professor of New Testament at Trinity Evangelical Divinity School in Chicago, Illinois, and a rising uh, scholar in the book of Hebrews. And so we're so glad to have her here on our last week in our seven-week series on the book of Hebrews. Our text is Hebrews chapter 10, verses 11 through 25. Hebrews chapter 10, verse 11 through 25. Make sure to subscribe if you're not already, so you never miss an episode. And as you're listening, if you're enjoying the show, hit the share button on your podcast player app of choice to pass this show on to others so they may benefit as well. And lastly, if you'd like to support the show as well as receive some additional content, simply go to patreon.com slash fresh text to become one of our patron saints. Thanks for listening and enjoy this conversation with Madison. Uh, so, Madison, would you be willing to read the passage, Epistle to the Hebrews, chapter 10, verse 11 through 25? Yeah, I'd be happy to. Um, I'll just read from the NIV. Day after day, every priest stands and performs his religious duties. Again and again, he offers the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. But when this priest had offered for all time, one sacrifice for sins. He sat down at the right hand of God. And since that time, he waits for his enemies to be made his footstool. For by one sacrifice, he has made perfect forever those who are being made holy. The Holy Spirit also testifies to us about this. First, he says, this is the covenant I will make with them after that time, says the Lord. I will put my laws in their hearts and I will write them on their minds. Then he adds, their sins and lawless acts I will remember no more. And where these have been forgiven, sacrifice for sin is no longer necessary. Therefore, brothers and sisters, since we have confidence to enter the most holy place by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way opened for us through the curtain that is his body, and since we have a great high priest over the house of God, let us draw near to God with a sincere heart, and with the full assurance that faith brings, having our hearts sprinkled to cleanse us from a guilty conscience, and having our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold unswervingly to the hope we profess, for he who promised is faithful. And let us consider how we may spur one another on toward love and good deeds, not giving up meeting together, as some are in the habit of doing, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day approaching. The word of the Lord. <laughs> thanks be to God. Let us pray. Father, we give you thanks for your word, the word through which you created all things, and the word which you spoke in these latter days uh, through your son. And we thank you for uh, the sacrifice, the single sacrifice that he enacted. And Father, we give you thanks for the way that the life and death and ongoing intercession of Jesus has been so well attested by this epistle to the Hebrews. And so as we draw towards the, not the very end, but towards the end of this epistle, I dare to ask that in our conversation today, you would draw us near that Madison and I and all those listening in separated as we are by time and space would nevertheless, by your Holy Spirit, be drawn near as we draw near to you. So grant us the confidence to cling with boldness 
uh, to the truth that has been handed on to us. And Lord, may our conversation be one that is inspiring and illuminating for those listening in. I ask this all in the name of your Son, Jesus Christ. Amen. Let's start with some observations. Uh, what are you noticing here? I know it's a familiar text to you, but what jumps out at you today afresh? It's always interesting to me when I read this text to think about the role of the community in Hebrews. And I think of that, I saw that again, just reflecting on, um, you know, this particular point in the in church history um, and all that we're experiencing um, with, with COVID and all of that. But this... Um, uh, let us consider how to spur one another on toward good deeds. Um, and the the point there, I mean, this is right at the end, so it, it of course sticks out. Um, it's uh, not, you know, not giving up meeting together, not because it's edifying for me, um, but because, you know, we and community care for each other and the community is stronger when we're together. And I think that's a really different kind of mindset to what we often see reflected, especially in kind of North American modern ecclesiology. You think about what we get from church, but it's really, um, it's about what we're giving to, and so, so important. And it's not just about serving in children's or serving, you know, preaching or whatever, but it's about loving each other. No, I love that you bring that up. I, I know I've been seeing a lot of things, even just on social media, people like saying, why you, you know? why you need to go back to church, you know, and often the case for it when it's sort of articulated yeah. <laughs> in sort of consumer terms, I'm like, yeah, I don't buy yeah. it. <laughs> like I, what, what I'm doing at home's better. <laughs> I don't buy it. You know what I mean? But when the, when the, when the case is made the way that you're making it the way that, that the book of Hebrews is making it here where it's, you know, don't neglect the gathering because that is the context in which we encourage one another and spur one another on to love and good works. It's like, yeah, you know, uh, love and good deeds. I can't do those in my prayer closet. You know, um, I can study the word. I can pray. I can connect with God. There are, there are aspects of the Christian life that can be enacted, uh, in lockdown as it were, uh, in a kind of quasi monastic way, you know, um, but there are others that are not available to us, uh, at least not as naturally and not as fittingly. So I love that you bring that up. I mean, I, yeah, it sounds, it sounds like this, this exact, the last sentence 25, uh, yeah. or the last, uh, yeah. verse 25, it's all one sentence starting in what 19. Uh, <laughs> but, uh, the last verse is kind of does feel like a, a word mm-hmm. yeah, from the Lord right. to I've our very it a like, lot, like I said, right? I think it, or as you say too, I think it's often used in a way that maybe it's not intended. It's uh, it's a, yeah, about caring for one another and, and not necessarily about getting and yeah. Anyways. Yeah. So, I mean, we don't have to camp on this, but I mean, and I don't want to make a mountain out of a molehill here, but just looking yeah. at the, since we started at the end working backwards, which is sometimes fun. And this mm-hmm, is a weird mm-hmm. selection that the lectionary right. gave us this week is it's kind of the end of that big argument that's been running since chapter four and, and then, you know, it's quoting again, Jeremiah 31, which was quoted at length in chapter eight. So it's kind of clearly he's bringing something to an end. And then verse 19 in many ways kind of starts a new stretch, right? I mean, is that pretty standard? analysis of the structure of Hebrews that kind of 1019 kind of is the beginning of the end as it were, or am I kind of out in a limb when I say that? Well, there's no, um, no, uh, universal or, you know, no, um, like, uh, it's not that there's no dispute on this, but, um, you're quite right that, that many do think that there are kind of three, three parts to Hebrews or even in some instances where there are more parts um, they would think of 1019 as kind of a transitional point. So some will have that at the beginning of the third section. Some will have it at the end, you know, 19 to 25 at the end of the second section. Um, I, I would be one um, who would say that it's actually a transition, that it's a, or a hinge is, is often the language that I'll use. And I, I, I think I might be picking up on uh, Nauk, who's a German scholar. He, um, he talks about the parallels between 411 to 16 and 1019 to 25 that both have uh, three hortatory subjunctives, you know, let us, let us, let us. Um, and I think 
Uh, one is identical. Uh, one is uh, basically a synonym uh, of, of the three. Um, and one is, is slightly different, but still kind of along the same lines. And so there's a, there's a lot of parallelism between the two sections that, that make that a compelling argument from my perspective. So, yeah. Yeah. So we've got the triple let us that was let us strive to enter the rest back and four and mm-hmm. then let us hold fast our confession. That is word for word. And it's yeah. the second one. That's right. uh, and then, yeah, let us then with confidence draw near close, almost identical. So, okay. Yeah. So it was those three lettuces that was intriguing me to wonder the reference to the community that you mentioned. So this isn't to pick a fight, but just for fun, the explicit reference to the communal gathering only appears under the third let us, at least in an explicit way, unless I miss misreading it. Right. So it's, if it's let us draw near, you know, with the true heart and full assurance of faith, let us hold fast the confession of hope. I mean, obviously these are done in community, but it's not made explicit. It, it seems as mm-hmm. though maybe the how to stir one another up to love and good works, that's the one that needs to be explicitly communal. And I, again, I don't want to make a mountain out of a molehill here, but I mean, this is this familiar from Paul, faith, hope, love in the same order. Yeah, under each true. of these yeah. lettuces, which is yeah. striking, um, though he doesn't necessarily use those terms in the exact same way as Paul. Yeah. But, but it, you know, if, if we were to stretch out your insight about even contemporary application, one wonders if, okay, can you have faith alone? Well, okay, yeah, maybe. You know, can you hold on to your hope, you know, in solitude? Sure, right? Mm-hmm. But love and good works? Mm, okay, that's where – that's where it's going to break down. Yeah. Being able to live that out. The fullness of love and good works requires a communal gathering. Again, I'm not saying that the author's making that point, but it, it is striking that unless now here's what the, the pushback I want to invite does draw near imply something other than just a kind of relationship of the soul to God is draw near imply a kind of community faithfulness or something. I don't know. What, what are you thinking there? Yeah. So um, some of this I'd have to to probably ruminate on a little bit more, but I think I can articulate something helpful. So the short answer is yes, there is something more. Um, And so one of the most unfortunate things about, well, there are a lot of unfortunate things about being a Hebrew scholar in a contemporary day. Um, But one of the uh, ones that I would pick up on, especially right now, this is what I'm grouching about these days, is the fact that a lot of the language that's used in Hebrews in a technical or semi-technical way is part of our kind of common parlance. And we use it in such metaphorical ways that we don't actually pick up on what's signified. So, I mean, the the clearest instance of this is sacrifice. We talk about sacrificing all the time. I sacrificed my time. I sacrificed my resource. I did this. You know, he made the ultimate sacrifice. We We obviously see that in military imagery as well. None of that has to do with a lamb or a bull or a goat being ritually slaughtered on the altar and it's blood being poured out. That doesn't help us to understand Hebrews. And so same thing with the drawing near. This is cultic imagery. He's talking about a priest, a priest who approaches the the altar, who makes a sacrifice. And what's interesting about Hebrews, and this is something that um, I'd be happy to talk more about, I think it's uh, maybe underrepresented in discussions, is that the author doesn't just say that Jesus is a priest. He does say that Jesus is the one who makes the once for all offering. But then he asks us to approach the altar and to offer sacrifices of praise and things like that. And drawing near is entering this, the holy space and acting as priests. And so my understanding would be that, and, and this is fully kind of revealed from my perspective in Hebrews 12, where he says, we draw near to the mountain, we gather in the festal gathering and so on. But I, th- I mean, this is what they're journeying towards and they draw near when they enter, when they, you know, press on and all of that. That's what they're heading towards. And so I absolutely think that it's you and I as priests, let's keep meeting together and drawing near and doing these things. That's why these are 
plural as well. (laughs) Yeah, so it is implicit, right? Yeah, (laughs) the grammar, right? Let us plural. (laughs) Duh! I just suddenly realized maybe my question was misplaced. They're all plural, although they can be a collective singular versus a yeah. Okay, that's right. Oh, that's really good. Well, it's okay to jump ahead to twelve because I mean, the lectionary in its wisdom or folly did this little seven part selection from Hebrews. And I mean, you know, you can only do so much. And I think some of the selections were pretty good for various reasons. Some of it because chapter 11 shows up in other places in the lectionary. This is actually the last uh, reading from Hebrews this year. That's right. And then we go off into Advent. And so, I mean, in some ways we're putting the burden on you, Madison, to Kind of walk us through, in some ways, the whole final section sort of introduces as a hinge, you know. So I appreciate you bringing up chapter 12, though, to say there's, oh, there's confirmation and evidence there that it's not merely let us in the sense of each of us individually drawing near to God, but it's let us draw near, draw near being this kind of quasi-technical term for us. Tell me if this language sounds right. Participating in Christ's own priestly office. I don't know. That's maybe an overwrought yeah. statement, but. Well, I, I mean, it's, I think it's us participating in the cultic ministry more broadly. And certainly, uh, you know, Christ is the high priest, but we are, I think, priests within that. And so, you know, we have a role to play in the holiness of God being you know, distributed. Now I'm, you know, I'm, I don't know if that language is, appro- is as appropriate as it could be, but um, this is I see about, what you're gesturing at though. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's sanctification and, and that's sanctification in a technical sense of like cleansing the temple, cleansing the spaces, cleansing the people and cleansing ourselves, you know, in our ongoing work of pure, of perfection. So, yeah. No, that's really great. Well, let's take a quick break and come back and explore that some more. And we're back. Welcome back to Fresh Text. I'm here with my guest, Madison Pierce, and we're looking at Hebrews chapter 10, verses 11 through 25. So before the break, we spent a good bit of time on the the sort of second half, that hinge section, 19 to 25, which is all one big monster sentence, you know, with a bunch of subordinate clauses. And the odds of us coming back to that when we think about sermon starters at the end of this episode is very high. So I I just want to put a pin in that though, and (laughs) maybe glance at the first half just to kind of get your, whatever insights or observations you might have. And and specifically, I wanted to put a question to you and you can kind of bat this away and we can answer it quick and move on to something more (laughs) interesting if you have it. But uh, your reference to perfection and sanctification, both of those terms struck me because of their being used together in verse 14, especially kind of to sort of just to create a problem for a conceptual problem just for mental thought, you know, just to get our, get our minds going. Cause 14 says by a single offering, he has perfected for all time, those who are being sanctified. And so it sounds like perfection has already happened. And then sanctification is this ongoing thing, which is almost like sort of like sounds to me inverted from the way we would use these terms in contemporary Christianese. Yes. Where we would think of sanctification maybe happening now that that part matches, Mm -hmm. but perfect is like, Oh, I'm not perfect yet. Like we would always, you know, and even Paul would uses the word perfect in a much more, much more commonly in a future tense. Not that I have yet attained, right? Philippians three. So the language of perfection is often, Modern usage, contemporary usage would tend to think of that as the thing that comes last in the sequence. So how can it be that perfection is done and completed in this offering? So help me with that. <laughs> yeah, um, you're quite right that the way that we use this terminology, it's inconsistent with what we might see in this verse. And there, there are a couple of different reasons for that. I mean, one is that, you know, sometimes we pick up on terminology and it, you know, it, it develops. I mean, the sacrifice is one example of that, that it, it, you know, it develops and then it takes on a slightly different connotation or whatever. But, you know, when we think about perfection, we do think about typically moral perfection, 
or we may think about something as being perfect in the sense that it's without flaw. And that's slightly different. So, you know, moral perfection would be, I act in all the ways that I'm supposed to or something like that and and beyond that. But, and then without blemish or without flaw would be like, you know, this is a perfect, uh, I don't know. I'm, I'm, I'm like looking at my, this is a perfect book. You know, this has like, there's no printing errors. It's whatever. Um, this is a perfect egg or ball or whatever. I don't know. But that's not how it's used in Hebrews. And this often trips up uh, modern readers because they see passages about Christ being perfected and they think, what? <laughs> that doesn't work for me. <laughs> um, because at what point was Jesus flawed? At what point was Jesus morally imperfect? Well, and the answer is never. So in, instead, it seems that Hebrews is actually using perfecting language to refer probably to something else. And there's something slightly more specific, actually. Um, and here I'm being influenced by David Moffat, um, whose uh, Atonement and the Logic of the Resurrection is just such an excellent book. But in that, David is saying that resurrection is a highly um, overlooked theme in Hebrews, if theme is appropriate there. And one of the reasons that it's overlooked is because a lot of modern readers don't realize that perfection is in some ways the author's terminology for the resurrection. It's life that endures. And so what happens that, you know, Christ's offering gives us resurrection life. It, it makes us eternal. It gives us eternal life. So to use Johannine language, um, and so the power of an indestructible life he uses at one point, author of Hebrews does right? right earlier in the book. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, that's right. So by one sacrifice, Christ has given resurrection life to himself. Or, you know, he's enabled that in himself, but he's also distributed it to all the people. But they are still in the process of being cleansed or sanctified or made holy. And, and, and here again, I want to point out that that is cultic language. Uh, we use that as in kind of Christianese to refer to our spiritual development. And that is appropriate, but it's spiritual language that is picking up on cultic language yet again. Okay, so we're still in the process of being cleansed, but the, the communication, the handing on, the mediation of that indestructible life has already taken place. That's so even right. if we haven't yet been raised from the dead ourselves, the mediation of that life has already been enacted. Am I am I sort of restating what you said accurately, or am I, I mishearing you? Yeah, I think so. To put it differently, you know, Christ died once for all the people, past, present, and future. So when He did that, our perfection was obtained. But whether we, I mean, you know, we haven't we haven't died, we haven't taken on or we haven't become eternal yet necessarily. We've got to we've got to die first. So yeah. Yeah, so so let's talk about time then for a moment. So st- sticking in verse 14, I mean obviously there's so much here, but I feel like already yeah. so much is hiding just in verse 14. So then this little <laughs> phrase, um Aisto Dienekes, Dienekes mm-hmm. help me with that. So it's you know for one you know, by one sacrifice or in one sacrifice, he has perfected then this phrase, those who are being sanctified. So, mm-hmm. I mean, I guess it's for all time is how it usually gets translated, but I, I don't actually know this word. So I, it might be another technical term or something, but. Yeah. I don't know about it being a cultic uh, technical term, but the Aista uh, Dinekes is, um, it's, an idiom for something like forever or always. And this is the, you know, here it's, it's translated as always, at least in an IV. Did you have for like once for all? Is that right? Yeah. So, I mean, I've got an ESV and it's saying for all time, which I think is maybe Mm -hmm. a little overwrought, but cause there's no, there's no all, but like you said, it is an idiom, but it isn't your, your, more common idiom of, you know, ice tone, you know, Asa to Aona, right? Mm-hmm. It's this other phrase that I'm just not familiar with. Um, mm-hmm. So that's why I thought I'd ask if there's something special going on there. It's only used in the book of Hebrews. Yeah. Four times all in Hebrews. So. Yeah. I don't, I'm not familiar with it having any cultic associations, but I think it's just, yeah, for, it's has a kind of always or endlessly. And so um, the, the question I think has to do with, let's see if I can frame this correctly. 
the there is a discussion as to to what it refers to. And this I may be mixing this up though. I think there may be another verse where it could have it could go forward or backward, like it could go with the participle or the finite verbs. That may be what I'm mixing up. But there is a question as to whether it's um the like a holistic picture or whether it is like eternal and whether the action is ongoing. And so you can see that with um the kind of question of okay, if we've been perfected, if Christ sacrifices one time then why are how are we still being cleansed and in what way is Christ's work ongoing and that of course i don't know if this came up when you talked about hebrews 7 but that is of course something that the the lectionary does address um in hebrews 7 that he lives forever and he always lives to intercede for them that's in 27:25 and so i think we would see some of that reflected in this verse as well that yes we have been perfected because the christ event the or the the sacrifice of Christ has enacted our perfection but Christ continues to intercede for us and to cleanse us and so it's not that any of our sins are uncovered or not covered by his work but that there is still work to do so yeah yeah no that's good well yeah i mean just thinking about where else it's used in case just a, it's the yeah, it's verse 12 is that same phrase that ace told it's not rolling off the tongues. I'm not familiar with it. Uh, right. It's verse 12. It's also used right when he had mm-hmm. offered for all time. What, how did NIV translate it there for all time? Okay. But then it didn't yeah. in verse 14, it switched. Yeah, NIV did. Interesting. Okay. Yeah. And then it appears, but verse one of chapter 10, it appears as well. And there yeah. it's there. It's not for all time, right? It's by the same sacrifices offered over and over every year repeatedly. Yeah. So it feels like a cheat, not that you have to translate something the same <laughs> way every time, but but since the whole argument here is built on a comparison and a contrast. That's right. In this case, there is a comparison. There is a kind of continual perpetualness mm-hmm. of Christ's sacrifice. That's um right. like it's always well, it's 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 what perfection, even as a even the grammar of perfection, right, is it has uh, the perfect tense, right? It mm-hmm. it has been accomplished and it's continually in effect, right? It's not yeah. just a yeah. past and then you leave it in the past. Yeah. Uh, it's perpetually effective. Yeah, strange. So then that, I guess, uh, brings us back maybe to the let us draw near, let us hold fast. I take it that the force of the argument is such that the assurance that the work that Christ has done is perfect to such a degree, to such an extent, to, to such a continuous effect, that it's on that basis that, you know, it's not, well, he did, the, he did his half, now you do your half, right? It's not, you know, God did his part, he, you know, accomplished this sacrifice, and then your part is to draw near and this sort of thing. It's No, it's, it's so fully active that that's meant to kind of inspire a kind of confidence that we don't have to wonder whether he'll hold up his end of the covenant. Um, but tell me if I'm misreading when I, when I put it that way. No, I'm happy with that. Um, yeah, to summarize the, the section, we have the, you know, the Levites have been going constantly, approaching God. They've been doing what God, and they've been doing what God has asked of them. So you're quite right. There's a comparison so they did the faithful works that God asked of them according to the law, but they had to keep going because there was something about their work that wasn't accomplishing things in as you know robust a way. So they had to keep going. Christ had to do it one time, and although his work is ongoing, he made one approach and was and was able to sit down as it says, and so. He offered a different kind of sacrifice. He offered a willing self-sacrifice that God accepted, and now he waits. But with that, it's the quotation from Jeremiah 31 that sometimes does get passed over because it's like, oh, we've heard this before in chapter 8. But the author actually does quite a bit with this quotation to change it. I think 25% of this short quotation is different in terms of the lexical forms. So it's actually different than even um, the way it comes out in chapter 8. That's correct. Oh my heavens. Okay. That my last question was, do you want to say anything about Jeremiah 31 before we go to the break? And the answer is yes, you do. I so do. <laughs> 25% I do. of it is adjusted. 
Yeah, some of it does move Whoa. back toward the original quotation that he's he's drawn. Some of it is more general. So like, um, this is the covenant I will make with them rather than the house of Israel, the house of Judah. <laughs> and then, uh, but the I think the emphasis, and I'm not alone in this, is the verse 17. Their sins and lawless acts I will remember no more. And so as we're talking about, you know, what this means for their effective cleansing and all of that, this is God promising that even though there will be ongoing cleansing that's necessary, that he's forgotten and forgiven the sins. And so if that's the case, even if ongoing cleansing is necessary, there's still a process. No more sacrifices are necessary for their cleansing. And so this is good news. I mean, this is another thing is that the argument isn't, um, you know, congratulations, kick back your feet. The expectation from the author of Hebrews is that they will be so moved to worship that they will want to enter the holy space and approach God. And that is beautiful. So you're quite right. There's not a, you know, God does this and I do that. It's more God did that. And so I can, I can meet him. And the hope that God's incredible work will spur us on. <laughs> that is wild. Yeah. Sorry, now I'm just totally geeking out on these. I just never <laughs> noticed that. It's so obvious when mean. you point it out. So camping on the remember, there's a lexical form change here. And mm -hmm. it's the same verb, I think. It is, yeah. Mineo, right? So... So what's the – is there any significance to the change to this kind of what appears to be maybe a, a passive or middle voice in, in chapter 10 here? I don't know. I don't want to yeah. over, overdo it. but And then this addition of and their lawless deeds. Yeah. So the change in tense form, you know, a lot of grammarians will say that the aorist passive – or with the prohibitive, so the ume, I think, with the aorist passive, that it's effectively, I think it's aorist passive subjunctive too, isn't it? So I got to duck back up to the yeah, it is. quotation there. Okay. So the aorist passive subjunctive and the future passive indicative, that they're effectively, um, you know, synonymous. But then, I mean, that introduces the question, well, then why in the world did he change it? Because he obviously, you know, has both in mind. I mean, he could flip back a couple of pages and see. So, whereas we might want to be reserved about saying that an author has made a change or something like that. In other instances, you know, this is where we can make a comparison in the work of Hebrews and say, okay, he knew what was earlier. Anyways, so what, what I would say, you know, it's hard to make these kind of uh, really strong statements based on the grammar when obviously it's interpreted. But I, th I think that it's a, the future is stronger. And it's a pronouncement that this will always be the case, that he will never, ever, ever remember these sins again. It's forever. And yeah, makes it more of a never. Than, yeah, yeah, that's right. That's right. It's a little more of a will not, a little less of a shall not, as it were, you know? Yeah. Um, yeah. He shall not so, implies a kind of, that's the plan, you know? And a will mm -hmm. not, it's more of a locked in. Yeah. I mean, again, you right. don't want to make a mountain out of molehill, but the author knows his scripture. So when he, and when you literally have the same quotation and there's an adjustment and not just an adjustment, but like the pausing and saying, then he adds, and the ascription of all this to the Holy Spirit as the kind of author and agent is striking just as an aside, right? So, Yeah, so my dissertation or my thesis was on spoken quotations of scripture in Hebrews. And so, you know, of course, these are focuses for me and the comparison between the two. So uh, one of the things that I would say is that the Spirit speaks to the community. And so whereas God is the one who, the Father presumably speaks the quotation in, in chapter eight. And he says it, you know, there's no explicit addressee. It's just, he kind of speaks it. I, I'm going to make a new covenant in the same way that he says, you know, you'll be a priest forever and all of these things. Some of those do have explicit addressees, but often he he's just pronouncing. I mean, God is swearing. And when God says things, things happen. But here in chapter 10, it's that the spirit who can speak as and for God you know, the spirit takes us up and he says to us, he testifies to us and says, I will remember your sins no more. So that's, that's pretty special, but it also fits a, a broader pattern of, you know, divine speech in Hebrews. So, oh, that's really, oh, that's so fascinating. And that, 
that notion that in some ways that passage from Jeremiah, it's like it's first being introduced as this prophecy from the past that's being exposited with reference to the work of Christ. And then here, yeah. right in the, as he's transitioning in the final chapters to the community's acts of faithfulness and response, right? Yeah. Is this moment of, and that word of prophecy is being spoken afresh now. Is that kind of, yeah. okay, that's really uh, well, powerful. I, I, I nuance it a little bit because I think that when the author of Hebrews says the word of God is living and active, he's not just talking about scripture. I, I right. actually think he's talking about the words of God in Hebrews. And so I, I think that the, you know, in chapter eight, it, you're quite right that he's recalling prophecy, but I, but I wouldn't want to, and, and you may not have been saying this. Don't make that a dead say, word of the past, right? That's okay, right. Yeah. That's right. No, it's still, because with that, he effectively enacts the new covenant. I mean, that's what the author says is that by calling this one old, he or sorry, new, he has made the old, other one old. So that does something uh, when it's spoken. And so it's more about the, this amplifies the, the livingness uh, of the word, because even within this short context, we can see the word doing more than one thing and being portrayed as the speech of more than one person of God. And that's really special. So, <laughs> Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's good. That's good. Yeah. I don't want to render the quotation in chapter eight inert, right? So that, that was already living and active, but something happens here as a kind of uh, a movement uh, into the present, perhaps that sets us up for the let us, let us, let us, right? Yeah, absolutely. Especially the move of making the language more generic with the covenant I make with them, right? That also kind of is a kind of inclusion of all the listeners. I think so too. Yeah, because it's who's the most proximate reference? That those who are being made holy. And right. So who, he he makes perfect forever those who are being made holy. He testifies to us. This is the covenant I'll make with them. Uh, yeah, I think it's very likely that that's part of it. I mean, some of the things that he's paraphrasing here or something like that, but I think the shifts are, are pretty intentional. And I think it do does still fit as a quotation, um, in, in part because most of the, the changes can be explained in some really significant ways. The other one you highlighted is the, the addition of the lawless deeds. And I argue this um, at length in, in my thesis, so y'all feel free to jump over there if what I say here is not satisfying. I only, I'm not trying to self-promote. I don't think you'd mind too much, but I'm mostly saying it because this is a complicated argument that I, I'm not sure I can explain verbally as well as I can show it. But some of the changes in Hebrews 8, uh, that's not a pure kind of replication of Septuagint, Jeremiah 31 or 38, really, chapter 38 in the Septuagint either. There are a number of variations between the Septuagint or the Old Greek and what we see in Hebrews. And what's interesting is that a number of those alterations or variations or however you want to describe them, they actually bring the text into line with, I can't remember if this is the English or the Greek version off the top of my head, but it's chapter 41 about Hezekiah, about the renewal of the covenant, renewal of a covenant. Wow. Okay. Yeah. Here. This is language that's found only the sins and lawless deeds, that combination, it may just be innocuous. It's just a couple of, you know, nouns, whatever. But what's interesting is it only occurs, I think, two places in Hebrew Bible. One is Exodus 34, and the other is Nehemiah. Nehemiah, again, I'm getting mixed up with, this is English or Greek, but 19. And that's where Nehemiah is talking about Exodus 34. Wow. Okay. Another renewal of the covenant. And so people talk about the kind of, you know, uh, stark and offensive supersessionism of Hebrews that, you know, he's doing away with the old covenant. He is disparaging the sacrificial system and the Jewish way of life. But I think what he's doing with those alterations to the Jeremiah 31 quotation is saying, this is new, but it's not this complete departure from what God was doing. This is a renewal of the, the covenant with the people of God, because you are the people of God. Yeah. So <laughs> a renewal of the covenant, even as something is being abrogated, the abrogation is in advance of a continuation, which is why then back to the very first point you made at the top of this hour is 
that even as the priestly class and sacrificial duties are being set aside, they're also then kind of transferred to not just to Christ alone, but through him, us in him, we're drawing near with him, under him, in him, and that there is this uh, priestly cultic life that we inhabit. Wow. Yeah. Renewal of the covenant. Man, that's fascinating. Okay, let's take a quick break and come back and explore some more <laughs> sermon starters. Good. And we're back. Welcome back to Fresh Text. I'm here with my guest, Madison Pierce, and we've been having fun talking about Hebrews chapter 10, verses 11 through 25. So let's explore some sermon starters. What uh, what uh, suggestions, insights, directions would you offer to those who might be, you know, preaching this text and would want some advice or something to kind of prime the pump? What thoughts might you have? Obviously, we gave them a lot of sort of exegetical <laughs> ideas, but what's the what's the main thrust? What's the angle that that you think might be really relevant to us today? Yeah. I mean I, I think that there are two distinct kind of units in this. So if I was approaching this as a preacher, then I would think, you know, eleven to eighteen is the distinctive kind of section of text and then nineteen to twenty five is as well. And they're absolutely related. I mean, so ideally, you can find space to deal with all of of the selection that the lectionary has offered us, you know, but you'd want to make sure that you did justice to each of those parts if that's the choice that you make. But with that, would you be inclined to maybe pick one and use the either? I mean, like if if I, I don't know, just an aside for, Mm. do you tend to like when you're listening to sermons at least or when you're delivering them yourselves, do you tend to be kind of a, Less is more or more is more, you know, kind of person. Do you like want to hear more text or less text, but more deeply exposited? Do you know what I'm saying? Oh, yeah, that's a good question. Um, I think for me, whenever I'm deciding, you know, if I'm given a, a kind of a general guideline, you know, here's a chapter that you need to deal with in some way, then it really just depends on where I feel like God is leading me and how cohesive I feel it is. So if I can't come up with a, you know, a single kind of, big idea or proposition or however you want to frame that in terms of your preaching, then I might be inclined to say, you know, this, this needs to be, I need to deal with less text so that I can deal with it well. And so for me, it's not about, there's not a hard and fast rule, but it's um, how much of the text can I deal with faithfully? And so my, my inclination is to, if the lectionary says, this is the text to, to take that seriously um, so I come from an Anglican tradition, or I, I am Anglican. I, I don't come from an Anglican tradition, technically. So yeah, I'd want to deal with what the, the lectionary gives me. But my number one priority is being faithful to the text. And so that does sometimes override this, the lectionary selection if I feel like I really can't preach what I feel like God is leading me to and say that it's from all of this. If that makes sense. No, it totally does. And that was really good advice because I was kind of asking generically more or less. And I kind of heard, I thought, I, I thought you mentioned something really homiletically helpful, which is unless I have like a really clear central idea, then I'm going to go with a smaller chunk. That, that's a nice rule of thumb because like if you have a kind of, if you have a real clear angle, then you can talk about more text because that's your principle of selectivity. You you run through and you get yeah. the, you get the references in that chunk that you need, and you can ignore other parts. But if you're still kind of finding your way, and it's like that someone's you know texting you saying, "Hey, we needed your we needed your passage for the bulletin <laughs> and two hours ago," it's like, well, go for less because you'll find something. But yeah, well, thanks for camping out too. on that. I just kind of wanted to hear your advice on that because everyone has a different take. So whenever I have somebody new yeah. on the show, I like to get their takes on text selection. So, all right. So there's two clear units here. And if we're going to focus on the first, then the second helps us apply it probably. And if we yeah. focus on the second, the first is, is crucial background for the basis of how the second absolutely. goes. Okay. Yeah, so any, absolutely. Any thoughts on a sort of direction that one might take? Again, I'm just so asking this in an open-ended way. I'm not expecting you to preach a sermon off on the yeah. fly with no prep, but just kind of, you know, as people are prepping that might be listening in, um, what suggestions or uh, advice would you offer them? Honestly, the way that you frame that in terms of, 
you know, teaching the first section and then kind of applying it or kind of living it out in terms of the second, I mean, that strikes a chord with me and seems like a really responsible way. And so um, rather than kind of reframing the sermon, I would say just kind of like top tips for, you know, doing this, that, that well would be, you know, make sure that you're reading the other parts of Hebrews. I know that, all, you know, the, the hope is always to deal well with the context. I think that every preacher expects that they're they're dealing well with the context, but spend some time making sure that you know Hebrews um, because it really can trip you up. And some, some of the reasons we've talked about in terms of the, you know, unfamiliarity of the imagery and things like that, but the other thing is that it comes out of uh, a reminder that you gave, but it's another one of my like pet peeves or whatever, is that Hebrews is built on contrast and comparisons. I was so thankful that you said that because a lot of times we think that Hebrews is this, you know, Jesus is better, Jesus is better and better than what? If you completely like set aside the first covenant, then, you know, ice cream is better to eat than dirt. That <laughs> completely diminishes the argument. But Ice cream is better than brownies, or I don't know. Y'all you may be sweet tooths, but you know this wonderful thing is great and absolutely the will of God. And somehow this other thing is better. Somehow that means something. I'll stop for a second. <laughs> I love it. I absolutely love it. My uh, mentor in college, uh, I mean, he's the person why I, you know, went into study theology. Bud Bents is his name. Some of our listeners would know that name. He had this lecture. On, and it was on ancient Christology in his church history class. You know, this lecture that was just, the opening question was, how do you get hot ice cream? And, <laughs> and fitting that it was Christology, but, uh, you know, and of course, sometimes we would joke, well, it's called fried ice cream. You can get it at Chi Chi's, right? But anyway, but, you know, like this idea of like this combination of impossible things. And in some ways, that's what you have is this. And now I'm being silly, but I almost want to run with it. Uh, just like you kind of felt silly and wanted to stop. I'm, I'm, I'm going to, I'm going to, I'm going to barrel through like the ice cream <laughs> that is the, 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 the priesthood and the sacrifice, this beautiful, wonderful thing. Um, well, you know, it melts, right? It doesn't last. You have to keep doing it over and over. And then somehow you have this. Jesus is this, I know this is so dumb, but this ice cream that's like out in the heat and hot and emitting heat and yet not melting, right? Mm, it's that perpetual a, yeah. capacity. Yeah. And now whether that illustration is remotely useful for any of our listeners, uh, it I at like least it. names something strange, like to, to catch the strangeness of what Jesus is providing, not just like to not read, because the book, the whole argument of Hebrews doesn't work if it's like, the sacrificial system is obviously stupid and Jesus replaces it with this like obvious intuitive alternative. Yeah. It's totally the other way around That's a sacrificial right. system, not just for the Jews, but for all these, all the ancient societies and pagans in which this was operating had a certain sensible logic to it. It was what was intuitive to them. And so it was kind of counterintuitive that you could have this sacrifice that would be offering this perpetual indestructible mediation of life. Um, it's kind of bonkers. Uh, so <laughs> yeah. really like celebrating that. And if you're going on a series through the book of Hebrews, through the lectionary or just on your own, you know, and if this happens to be your last time, I would be weary of just running to the, the three lettuces, which is kind of the obvious three point sermon that this is just like waiting, you yeah. know, the lettuce, uh, draw near, let us hold fast, let us consider how to stir up. I mean, it's so perfect. Let us draw yeah. near, Good stuff. let us hold fast, let us stir up faith, hope, love. It's too perfect, right? Yeah. But in a way, if that if that's just the whole sermon, the energy, the the fire that drives it can get lost. So like one last celebration of the beautiful, bizarre power of the covenant renewed and expanded in Christ yeah. is worth our attention. However you find, however you communicate, whether it's with, you know, hot ice cream or some other superior metaphor than, than that one. But I liked it. Um, it made me think of the contagiousness of Christ's holiness that, you know, the expectation would be, as, as you said, that heat would melt it, but actually it gives off heat. And it's the same way that you'd expect that 
Jesus coming into contact with these unholy people and all yeah, that. Yeah, it's he like the book of Mark, tainted, right? Yeah. But instead, yeah. But um, the other thing I was going to say is that, um, you know, talking about the three points and just kind of like going with it. I mean, on the one hand, if you're preaching through Hebrews and you're not talking about sacrifice, you are not preaching Hebrews. You're abs- You're not. You're preaching you know, whatever. But, you know, one of the reasons that I feel, one of the many, many reasons, but one of the reasons I feel drawn to a lectionary-based tradition is because I get to hear the distinctiveness of the Word of God in these various places. And so we need to be able to give Hebrews its distinctiveness and to let it speak in the ways that it should. And if you make it Paul light, which distilling Hebrews, that's basically what you're going to end up doing, then you are Uh. not preaching the text faithfully. So, yeah. Oh, that's good. And that applies to the, the triple lettuce at the end that, that although this does conveniently line up with that Pauline triplet of faith, hope, and love, even in the same order, which is nice, those verbs are not the controlling verbs of those sentences. That's it's right. these let us draw near. It's let us hold fast. Let us mm-hmm. consider how to stir up. And so the emphasis, the accent needs to fall on where Hebrews puts the accent, which is on those particular kinds of communal verbs that are about the worship of God, the mediation of holiness, the perseverance in the face of temptation and trial. Yeah. Well, Madison, I had a blast talking about the book of Hebrews with you today. I hope you had a good time too. Absolutely. I am certain our listeners loved hearing from you, some for the first time, maybe some who are uh, fans of yours who listen to the show for the first time because they're wanting to hear you. Uh, But either way, so thankful for the time that you gave and thankful as always to our listeners. Thanks for uh, getting the word out about the show. Uh, Thanks to Todd and Eric for their production work. Can't imagine doing this show without them. Thanks to Tom Adamson for donating the theme music. Thanks to our uh, patron saints who support the show. If you want to find ways that you can support the show, just go to patreon.com slash fresh text and you'll see ways that you can do that and get some extra content. And with that said, we say have a good preach and a great week. Bye-bye. <laughs>